We are to um, uh, John chapter 12. It's amazing to me the amount of information in the Gospels on the last week of Jesus' life. It's incredible. They say that if all of Jesus' life was recorded in the same detail as the last week of his life, it would fill up 180 volumes as big as the Bible. That's just how much information there is about these last 168 hours of the life of Jesus. That's just such a focus for us and so amazing. And, you know, you get all the Gospels converging on that. We're going to try, as most of the time, to just focus on John's perspective on this. I think that's a helpful thing. I'm sure that we sometimes will introduce some information from the other Gospels as well. But uh, we'll try to mostly look at what John is saying. But it's just, it's just fascinating. And that means, you know, the, uh, almost half of the Gospel of John is the final week of Jesus on. Uh, so this is definitely a major emphasis in uh, this book. So, uh, John chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through 11. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised him there they made a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with them. Then took Mary a pound of ornament of spicken, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ornament sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had a bag and bare what was put, in, put therein. Then Jesus said, Let her alone. Against the day of my bearing she has, she, has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on the Alright, as we're going to have to do every once in a while in this, because we've got so much information, we do need to sort out some of the details with the accounts of the other Gospels. There's a couple of points here that are somewhat disputed points. Every Gospel contains an anointing. Matthew and Mark contain an anointing that looks a lot like this one. Luke's anointing is this sinner woman, apparently earlier in the life of Jesus. And the liberal scholars, and even some conservatives, try to figure out, you know, which Gospels were mistaken, you know, or was Mary the sinner woman, or whatever. But as we talked about uh, in connection with the cleansing of the temple, there's a, a reluctance, especially on the part of liberal scholars, to think that there could ever be two similar events occur in the life of one man. Why they would think that, I have no idea. I think it provides a convenient opportunity to down the Bible. But it looks to me like that the Gospel of Luke records the anointing by the sinner woman, which occurred earlier. There are some different details. It happens that it was at Simon's house also. There's like ten Simons in the Bible, nine or ten, I don't remember. Uh, Simon's one of the most common names. It was the name of one of their great heroes in the intertestamental period. So the fact that both of them would coincidentally have been in the house of a guy named Simon is really not that big a coincidence. But I think Luke's anointing is different 
the one in Matthew, Mark, and John is this anointing by Mary, even though Matthew and Mark don't mention the name of the woman that anointed Jesus. Now the other problem that we face is that Matthew and Mark's anointing appears to be at a different time. I just need to deal with this for a second, I think. Um, and it's also kind of an illustration of the kinds of things that people find that they say are contradictions to the Bible. You look at Mark's anointing in Mark 14. You've got in verse 1, this is two days before the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes are trying to figure out how to kill him, and they say not during the festival. And then it tells about this anointing, and then it tells in verse 10 about Judas going off, and contracting with the chief priests to betray Jesus. Now, that would give you the impression at first sight that the anointing occurred two days before Jesus' death, before the Passover. But in John 12, 1, it says six days before the Passover. Now, you see how those who want to discredit the Bible can easily fixate on this. Here's a contradiction in the Bible. And they may say something like, well, you know, you just can't trust the Bible when it comes to historical details. You know, the Bible's a great record of, of God and, and uh, the, you know, the doctrines and all that. But when it comes to historical details, scientific details, the Bible's no better than any human document. Sometimes human authors just make mistakes. Well, that's easy for them to say. That would work very well if you really believe in a God who knows everything and who doesn't lie and who inspired the writers of this book. You know, if they're wrong about historical and scientific details, what's there to make us think they're going to be right about theological details? So, I don't accept that at all, but then that puts more problem for me when it comes to passages like this, where, well, what do you do with that? Two days before and six days before is like not really the same time. And you've got basically the same thing in Matthew 26, um, and maybe not quite as specific in terms of exactly when, but you've got it in, set in the same context. Now, here's what I think that we ought to do with that. Um, and that is this. In Mark 14, when you've gotten one and two, two days before the chief priests want to kill him, they're just trying to figure out a way. Then you have a flashback. He tells about the anointing that occurred a few days before. In contrast with that, he presents Judas, who agreed with the chief priest to betray him. He's putting, the, he's putting kind of a story inside a story. The outer story is, they want to kill Jesus, they can't figure out how, and Judas agrees to sell it. The inner story is the flashback to what Mary did in anointing Jesus. That's not a bad way to tell a story. Sometimes you tell one piece, then you go to another story, and then you come back and finish the story. There's a reason why they, they do that. Mark does that all the time. Mark's all, there's probably four or five, six times in Mark where you've got a story inside a story. Start looking for that when you're studying Mark. And what you see is when he puts a story inside of a story, there's a connection between the stories. Here's the connection. Look at the contrast between Mary's attitude and Judas's attitude. What did Mary do? She spent a lot of money to honor Jesus. What did Judas do? He did a dastardly deed to get money for Jesus. One of them was giving to Jesus. The other one was taking from Jesus. I think in Mark and Matthew, there's an intentional contrasting. You've also got kind of Judas missed out on a chance to profit by 
the perfume if it had been given to Jesus, you know, the money of it. And so he's going to find another way to make money off of Jesus. So I think when Matthew and Mark put those stories together like that, they're not trying to say that the anointing anointing occurred two days before. The plot to betray Jesus occurred two days before, and they just flash back to the story of Mary to sort of give the contrasting perspectives. When you, when you see something like this, that's sort of an apparent contradiction in the Bible, study. It, you know, God will do some things like this to make us look at it more carefully. To make us actually have to search it out and, and focus on it. Some of the most some of the gems of the Bible are in some of the hardest passages because it makes us look, makes us study, makes us work on it, and then we're going to really appreciate it more. So don't feel like these apparent contradictions are a bad thing. Well, I wish God hadn't done that. No, they're a good thing. They actually make us study and search and look for it, and once you start seeing it, it actually amplifies your understanding of what this is all about. Then you start realizing, oh, that's what Mark was doing. I see why he flashes back like that and why he connects those two stories and you actually get more understanding. So, I just felt like I needed to deal with those two points. I really want us not to be scared of contradictions, quote unquote, in the Bible. Sometimes we're like, oh, I hope, I hope they don't throw down any of those things. I don't know what to do with that. No, study, work on it. The Bible does not contradict itself. God was always right, but that doesn't mean that there's not something on the surface, and you're going to have to study and work on it and look at it and, and research it to really be able to understand the answer. Once you see the answers, it just confirms your faith, and you realize that these contradictions are really not contradictions when you look at it. You do the same thing, you know, if you've got a story from two different perspectives, an accident. On the surface, there might be something that looked contradictory until you actually put it all together and you realize, no, these are complementary perspectives. Do you have a question or comment about all that? I may have gone into that in too much detail, but thank you for indulging me in that. And uh, look at what he's doing here then in John 12. He's come back to Bethany where Lazarus was. Lazarus hadn't been, but he's back. And uh, he's there at supper, and, and they're at the table. And you remember how they were when they ate? At least a lot of the time, uh, they didn't have, you know, chairs and tables. And you sit and you eat off the table like we do. Um, I don't know if you remember that uh, little detail in the Passion of the Christ where, you know, they totally make it up where Jesus made a chair and table and so forth as if, you know, it's kind of out of chronological sequence. They were trying to be funny about that. But the point is that when they, when they had a table, it was a low table, and they would have kind of like a, a couch sort of a thing, and they, they'd sort of lay down on the couch supporting their, their head in their hand and eating with the other hand. That sounds terribly uncomfortable. But I'm sure it wasn't to them. I mean, everything depends on what you're used to. And I'm sure they worked it out there, but that just seems like a natural thing. But that helps you when you see, for example, Mary there wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Don't see her as underneath the table. You know, that'd be kind of weird. But, but Jesus' feet were actually out behind him. So that'd be the first part of Jesus you'd even come to. So Mary's there, and she takes the, a pound 
of a very costly perfume of pure nard. She anoints the feet with Jesus. She wipes his feet with her hair. Actually, she ended up anointing all of Jesus. If you look at the other Gospels, and and wow, this was amazing. Why did why did Mary do that? Do you think? Yeah, I think so. And just her love for Jesus. I mean, wow, Jesus was everything to her. I mean, she had a really close relationship with Jesus even before he raised Lazarus, remember, in Luke 10 with Mary and Martha and so forth. And, and, and you know, Jesus had a close attachment to them. She really loves Jesus. What does love do? If you really love somebody, what do you do? Yeah, you make sacrifices. Love's extravagant. You, you take a, a guy and a girl, you know, and they, they fall in love. You've never seen a guy do things that seem a little outlandish to prove how much he loves her and to, to serve her, you know. Hopefully you see that in husbands and wives. Unfortunately, sometimes we don't handle that as well as we should. But, but you recognize, well, a sacrifice is just a proof of love. So she really loves him. It's not like Jesus commanded everybody, go out and buy expensive perfume and anoint me. She's going over and above, not, not thinking, you know, sometimes we're like, uh, well, does Jesus make me do that? I mean, will I be lost if I don't do that? Well, the one who loves Jesus doesn't think in those terms. You think in terms of, I want to do all I can. I want to serve him. I want to honor him. So that's what she does. But Judas is there. And what's he think? And say, yeah, good grief. You wasted all this perfume. I mean, how much was it worth according to Judas? Yeah, 300 denarii. Do you know how much a denarius was? We generally think of a day's wages. I think that's probably pretty accurate. There's two or three reasons why we think that the parable of Matthew 20 is one of them. Um, 300 days' wages. I mean, that's pretty much a year's wages. I mean, how much do you make in a year? You know, I don't know. Depends on what you work at. You know, what if we wanted to say $30,000? I mean, that's kind of maybe an average salary for a year. Uh, may not be for you. You may make more or less. But what if it's 30000 Can you imagine spending $30,000 for perfume? <laughs> Now, where I come from, it's hard to imagine they sell perfume at that price. But I have asked audiences, and most people assure me, you can buy a perfume that's that expensive. I don't know. I uh, can't imagine it could smell that good. <laughs> uh, I remember I go, grew up with 5,000 caged laying hens, so anything smells good compared to that. But if you actually bought perfume that was that expensive, how much of it would you need to use? Yeah, I mean, that would be super concentrated. Just a drop would probably be, you know, all that you'd need. She breaks the whole flask and pours it over Jesus. This is amazing. You know, she uses the whole thing. And Judas is like, whoa, look at what we could have done with that money. 300 denarius. Well, we could have, they could have sold that and given it to the poor. Isn't that nice? Judas cared so much about the poor people. <laughs> but what do we find out about it? It's not what he cared for the poor. What was it? Yeah. He was embezzling the money. He, he was the, like the treasure for the group. Luke 8 and some other passages give indication that, that like they had sort of a, a, a common purse, if you want to say that. Money they collected, and they kind of used that to maintain the group. I suppose they had some expenses. Maybe they had to buy food sometimes and things like that. And Judas was kind of like the guy that held the money and 
bought things and so forth. Everybody, you know, a group like that would have to have some guy appointed to sort of be the treasurer. So he was that. But what he's actually doing is he was taking some of that money and putting it in his own, own pocket and enriching himself. That's really a horrible thing. So it looks to me like that Judas saw this chance for his own personal enrichment lost and he tries to create another one by selling Jesus. Look at 10.13. He's the hired hand who doesn't care about the sheep. Look at 10.10. He's the thief that comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's thinking about himself. He's not thinking about the Lord. He's not thinking about the people. He cares about himself. Isn't it? Can you imagine? Judas is with Jesus 24-7 for a long period of time. He saw Jesus. He lived with him. He heard him. He saw the miracles. I mean, when you think about having that closer relationship with Jesus and what he did, isn't that an outrage? That's the power that greed has on the heart of a person. We are so in so much danger because of, of our attitude toward material things. You know, and that can cause somebody to do things that are just absolutely ridiculous. And it's what it caused him to do. He, he sold out Jesus. You know, he, he takes advantage of this, uh, his close relationship with Jesus, to contract with the Jewish leaders to actually betray Jesus. Now, that's not specifically recounted yet, but I want to go ahead and talk about that for just a second so we can get the whole picture before us. Do you understand what Judas did? Think about this. When Judas, you know, he made the agreement with the Jewish leaders, he'll betray him. What did that mean? Betraying him means he did what? Well, yeah, but did they pay him his money to turn his back on him? What did they pay for when they paid Judas? Like a guide to find Jesus. Exactly. Acts 1. He was a guide to take them to where Jesus was at night when nobody was around. In the daytime, they knew where he was, but everybody was there. They were afraid of precipitating a riot. At night... Nobody knew where he spent the night with just a handful of disciples. Judas did. And Jesus in John 18 will go back to the very place where they, he always spent the night. So Judas will know where it is. So that's what he's, he, you know, that's the, the usefulness he had to the Jewish leaders. He guided them to where he was. That's how he betrayed him. So, you know, he's got his mind on money. You know, he's thinking this is a waste. What does Jesus say about what Mary did? She's good. It was good, yeah. What does he see it as? Yeah, it's like she pre-anointed his body for burial. Now, it's kind of like what Caiaphas said, remember yesterday, that it's better that one man die for the nation. I think what she did went beyond what she understood. I'm not sure she was thinking, well, this will anoint his body for the burial. I don't know that she knew he was going to die. 
But that's what her action actually meant. That's the way Jesus took it. And so it becomes sort of an acted prophecy of what was going to happen. The poor, well, you've always got them. But there was only a small window of opportunity to pre-anoint Jesus' body and honor him in this way, and that's what she did. So Jesus defends what she did. Do you have comments and questions through verse 8? Roger. Um, I think it's interesting. It's very similar to Luke 10, where Martha rebukes Mary for sitting at Jesus' feet. Um, is there something here about at least to be a balance between those loving God and loving people? Um, it's almost like well, maybe so, and the balance of that is God's first. That's the point. Maybe we also ought to say, if you do something for the Lord, especially something that seems extravagant, you'll get criticized for it. And you may get criticized for it by your own believing sister Martha or one of the twelve apostles Judas. And apparently some of the others even joined in. You may get criticized by good people when you really dedicate yourself to God. That's one of the most discouraging things there is. You know, sometimes it may be that with wisdom and seriousness you decide to you know, go to a dangerous place to preach the gospel. I'm not saying just taking off on a whim where you haven't even thought about what you're doing. But I'm saying you take you make a serious purpose, you get good advice from good people, and you go somewhere where it's going to be difficult. Or maybe it's not even dangerous, it's just going to be hard. You know, poor, you're going to put up with difficult living conditions. You know what you'll have? You'll have some of your best Christian friends and maybe Christian family say, oh, you shouldn't do that. No, that's that's not, you, that's not right, you know, shouldn't put yourself out like that, you shouldn't do this, that's, that's hurting your family, that's doing this, that's doing that. You can expect to get criticism if you do something extravagant for the Lord. Don't let that deter you. Use wisdom. But sometimes what we do for the Lord doesn't even seem very wise. I can understand why Martha was yelling at Mary for not helping him, helping her serve the food and take care of the house and whatever. I can understand why it really seemed impractical to just pour this whole perfume bottle on Jesus and waste a whole year's wages on it. I'd have been right there with them. That doesn't seem very smart. Sometimes really giving yourself to Jesus doesn't seem very smart. It is. But it's the, it's the logic of love, not the logic of, you know, some sort of cold rationality. Other comments or questions? Yes. Is yes. what Jesus says about the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me, similar to when you said we need to do the work of the Lord's day, because the night's come with no man can work, and that it still applies to us in terms of our priorities? I would say so. Yeah, definitely. Bet. Everybody kind of struggles over that. Um, keep it, perhaps, as opposed to selling it to the poor. Selling, selling it and giving it to the poor. Let her keep and use it for my burial, not sell it and give it away. Now, she's perhaps already done this, but I think still that's the idea. 
There may be something better. I don't know something better. But that is kind of an odd verb to use the way we're taking it. Chris? There is a literal, on the note, the literal translation of it, let her keep the custom of anointing for burial. Yeah. That would be another way of taking it. Could be. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, that's kind of a difficult thing. Brad? We kind of established that Jesus oftentimes ignores what somebody says and deals with what's in their heart. Here, he kind of ignores what's in Judas' heart yeah. and just deals with what he says and directs his, directs his comment the way he wants to go and says, you know, Judas is lost here. Yeah, that's an excellent point. He deals with Judas on the basis of what he actually said, even though Jesus knows that's not what he was really had in his heart. Sometimes, sometimes that's appropriate. Ben? Do you know what the exchange rate was between the Panera and the silver pieces? No, I don't. It's a good question, and I don't know the answer. I, I don't know, but that's a good question. Yeah, look it up. Andrew. Another thing is that we're exactly like Judas said everyone sometimes, Christians, like on the first day, we're, we're selfish about money. Like, put on the, in the basket, put in the, um, we should put all of what we need all of, in our hearts. We should desire to get, we want, we should want to get. And the um, Lord Jesus, but sometimes we keep we just put one dollar bill or and keep most of ourselves selfish. Greed is an easy thing to get involved with, JP. Um, how would the disciples have known or understood how Jesus was, I guess, um, telling Judas that that's not what this is worth? Because, I mean, if I was just a normal disciple and I didn't know the outcome, well, obviously, I didn't know the outcome was, was going to happen. And, you know, a person's like, you know, we should have given this to the poor. And obviously, yeah, that would have been a great idea. But Jesus just seems like he's saying, no, that's a dumb idea. Let her use it on me. And let that be it. I don't know that they did understand, especially when he says keep it for the burial. I don't know that they understood. Uh, I really like Second Samuel 24. I will not give the Lord, it will cost me nothing. Um, and we feel that most of the relationships, um, that you know it's going to be more when you sacrifice. And instead of giving the minimum, like, well, I'm going to help, I do this, but instead, look at opportunities to give God extra. Because that, then you can show that you care, just like you would the person you're dating or the person you care about. Good point. Tim? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want to ask you something similar. Isn't that going to be the idea of doing something extravagant and receiving criticism? Um, I don't have a good answer for it. What, what are the people criticizing what you're trying to do with your parents, and they're actually maybe telling you not to do it, um, but you really think it's a good thing to do, maybe becoming extravagant? How do you deal with honoring your father and mother and doing something you guys want to do? How did Jesus deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about several passages. Jesus seemed to indicate that the priority was his heavenly father, not his earthly parents. I don't think that meant Jesus didn't honor and take care of his mother. Even we'll see on the cross in John 19, he did that. But I don't think that we allow our physical family's um, desires change our commitment to the Lord. If it's something that we believe is the right thing to do, and we have good reason to believe that, it may be that our family won't understand. You know, they'd certainly, 
In Mark 3, they thought Jesus had gone crazy because he doesn't even have time to eat. He's giving himself to the people. They went out to try to, you know, take him into custody and give him a break. And they sent word in. He's, you know, they're out they're, they're outside looking for you. And Jesus says, who are my, who's my mother and my brothers and my sister? They're those who do the will of God. And he didn't go out and give attention to them. So, I mean, I think Jesus certainly shows us that our ultimate responsibility is to our Heavenly Father. He's who we turn to. Now, He wants us to honor our father and mother. There's, you know, giving priority to Jesus doesn't mean neglecting our parents. Certainly doesn't mean uh, being having a rebellious spirit or, or something like that. But it does mean they may not always approve of what we do in our commitment to Christ. I think it's a good question. I think that's the balance. Always, when you think about any question, try to think about, okay, what are Bible passages that help answer it? I mean, you know, because sometimes we're tempted to think, well, let's see, I kind of think this would probably be the right thing. <laughs> well, that's not nearly as good as trying to base what you're saying in the scriptures. And when you do that, when I just did that, then you can go back and look at those passages and you can see what you see. Other comments? Ben? Maybe two principles will help clarify this in my mind. Number one, there seems to be a specific time for this kind of action in a physical sense. I mean, Jesus kind of seems to be implying that do this physically for him now is appropriate, but, you know, we think of people who build these huge cathedrals and these huge physical monuments to things of the Lord. They can say it's an extravagant thing to the Lord. Well, we have various numerous other passages indicate that's not supposed to be our focus. God does not dwell in mental men's hands. And, and so this kind of a physical display in this <coughs> is not the kind of thing that Jesus is looking for from us today. Not directed to him in a sense of direct words. I mean, we can't sacrifice compassion for other people saying, well, I just, I'm, I'm dedicated to the Lord. He, then the Pharisees were saying this before in Mark 7. And in 1 John 3, he talks about how you, know, you say you have love for your brother and you shut up. Your heart against him, they'll give this world to goods. But also, when we start to see another principle, is the fact that these worldly things really aren't that important. And so it'd be wrong to you know, deny your brother or sister or your father or mother something worldly, some worldly goods that they need, based on saying, well, this, this is given to the Lord. But at the same time, we should never afford those things for ourselves. We can extravagantly give for Jesus to other people in this physical sense, even though Jesus is not physically with us. And that's what he's going to say to the disciples in a little bit. When you love the ones who are around you, you show them that you love them. And so while we wouldn't necessarily do this in this exact way today, we should still see things like, you know, very expensive earthly things as completely immaterial. All right, good principles. Yeah, it's helpful to think about some passages and concepts like that. That's, I think that's the right thing for us to do. When it comes to practical applications, try to think through what are biblical principles, passages, stories that would have something to bear on this. Logan? Now we talked about this to do with the well, I think she just loved him. Yeah, I don't know that she understood. Mason. She did at least understand better than the other people we'll see in this chapter uh, what Jesus was about. She may not have understood that he was going to die for the sins of the world, but she did understand that there was something very special about him. Something that required this level of Sacrifice and expense. Good and point. And that is unique in this chapter among the other people that will interact with Jesus. Good point. John? Is there any reason why 
John would refer to Mary in chapter 11 as uh, Mary who anointed the Lord before he tells the story here in chapter 12? Somebody else asked that question on a break. That's a good question. It's an interesting question. I don't know that it's impossible that John is putting this in so that the second time we read it, we'll know who she was. But I also don't think it's impossible that John is assuming that many in his audience already know the story from Matthew and Mark, or even from the fact that the stories about Jesus were told a lot. So I'm not sure which way to go on that. But it's an interesting point, uh, kind of an anticipatory reference. Yes. Jesus' name many, many times, long time before he betrayed him as the betrayer, too. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Good questions. Well, now, what, look at verse 9 to 11. This is probably the thing that floors me more here. You know, the Jews are coming to see Jesus, but not just to see Jesus. They want to see Lazarus. Whoa, the one he raised from the dead. And what do the chief priests decide? Yeah, the hit list grows. You know, just doing in Jesus is not going to be enough. you got to destroy the evidence. Now remember Caiaphas had said back in chapter 11, you know, it's better that one man die than the whole nation perish. Now it's going to have to be two. It's the nature of evil and, and, and malice. You know, it grows. And, uh, but, but do you realize why they felt like they needed to kill Lazarus too? Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that's really turning people's minds. They're seeing and even being able to talk to the man that was dead for four days. And that, that's causing a lot of belief. They're trying to squelch that. <coughs> Can you imagine the frustration of trying to kill a man who won't stay dead? <laughs> you know, he died once. That's usually enough for most people. But that just illustrates how incredible this event is. Uh, and you can imagine, the chief priests, they were mostly from what, what group of Jews? The Sadducees. And what did the Sadducees not believe in? <laughs> this is an embarrassment to their doctrine. Mason. <laughs> I guess that's another way that... Um the resurrection of Lazarus prefigures the resurrection of Christ. Because after the resurrection of Christ, they also kind of went, oh great, now what do we do? You know, they've got this additional problem. This guy that we killed won't stay dead. Um, You're right. And so that even with this first one, the prefiguring of that resurrection, they're going, why won't these people stay in the ground? Yeah. Absolutely. These are big problems. You know, you, we, we talk a little bit about like alleged contradictions and things like that, problems Christians have. But you ever thought about the problems an atheist has? You know, trying to defend his view and the difficulty all that is? Man, I mean, the chief priests are fighting a very difficult battle here. There's just too much evidence on their hands they're trying to dispose of. Josh. You're exactly right. I mean, it's just, do you see the hardening effect of a sinful, rebellious attitude? I mean, 
they're driven to do things that when we look at them seem absolutely unbelievable. And yet that's what sin will do. It hardens you. It makes you end up doing things that you would never have believed you would have done. I think that's exactly what we see in this. Good point. Other thoughts? Ben. Maybe a fine thing. I don't see criticism of it here. Logan. The more and more I look at the religious leaders of the Jews, I see that in all of their reasoning, God never is even mentioned in their thoughts. And they always will acknowledge that there's something being done. After in Acts chapter 3, when people with John healed the lame man, they say there's a benefit that's with sick man we know no where the miracles take place and we can't deny it. Then they go on from there to command them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Excellent point. The fact that they feel the need to kill Lazarus is an admission of what? He's alive! Jesus raised him! You know, the thing... There are, you know, there are these alleged miracles today from various sources. I mean, you know, all kinds of weird stuff. I mean, some from just totally secular sources, some from, you know, Pentecostal healers and all that. Uh, I get that all the time in Brazil. You know what I do with that? I say, prove it. I don't believe it. You know, I had one guy uh, many years ago tell me about this guy who was healing the blind in a suburb of Sao Paulo. He was telling a, a group study I was doing. You know, this guy told his name. Matt, it's amazing. He heals all these blind people and all that. You know, he gives them sight. You know, what I said was, man, yeah, I've got a friend who's totally blind. He's been to a lot of these places. He can't get healed. I want to go. Well, can we set a time? We'll go. I want to see that. Well, immediately he started backpedaling. He started stuttering. And like, well, he finally said, he said, well, you, you, you'd have to have spiritual eyes. You don't have spiritual eyes, you'll never see anything. I'm like, so you're telling me this is all in your head, you know? <laughs> but really, it's not difficult to challenge the evidence for these bogus healings. You know they'd have done it if they could. Man, the Pharisees and Sadducees would like nothing better than to have said, he never raised Lazarus. <laughs> if they'd have said that, it would look like total idiots. <laughs> what are they going to say? He's not really alive? <laughs> That's going to be pretty hard to, to sell. Are they going to say, well, he wasn't really in the grave four days? There's too many people who knew. What do you do? He had all kinds of witnesses that saw him come out of the tomb all bound up. You can't say that. They didn't say that. They just tried to destroy the evidence. That's proof these things really happened. Amen. 12 to 19. <clears throat> On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had <coughs> these things to him. So the people who were with him 
when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him on, raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went out and met him, because they heard that he had formed his side. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem the next day. Now, it's a bit challenging trying to put all the accounts together and figure out the chronology. But most people think, and I, I think it's probably the case, this is probably Sunday. It's coming into Jerusalem on Sunday. And what's the atmosphere like? Large crowd hyped up to see him. They're really excited. This is a, a celebration. It's a festival. Their lining is route, putting palm branches and their clothes on the on the way uh, for him to ride in on. Uh, they are so excited. They're greeting the national liberator. You know, the Messiah is coming into the capital. He's going to throw off Roman rule and Israel is going to be an independent kingdom. I think that's probably what they're thinking. This is, by the way, the background to the Catholic holiday, Palm Sunday. They, they make a holiday out of, or a religious holy day, out of this triumphal entry on that Sunday. And so the week before Easter, they'll go around with palm branches and so forth. I see that a lot in Brazil. It may not be quite as common to actually carry them uh, in the U.S. Uh, but there's no indication Jesus wanted us to celebrate this annually. But this is what happens. And, and you know, you see how much misconception they have. I mean, they, they really are thinking in terms of a political liberator. Jesus does some things, though, to try to stop them from their misconception. What does Jesus ride into Jerusalem on? Yeah, this young donkey. Actually, a donkey's colt in some of the uh, translations and in some of the, the accounts. And uh, that, that's all from Zechariah chapter 9. And the point Zechariah makes is that this shows Jesus' humility. What would you expect the conquering king to ride into the city on? Yes, a, a, a regal chariot or a stallion, a steed, a camel, an elephant but probably not a donkey's colt. You know, he's trying to emphasize his humility and correct their mistaken expectations. In fact, in Zechariah 9, you see the one riding on the colt, on the donkey, as being the prince of peace, not the conquering warrior. So I think Jesus is doing this to draw their attention to that prophecy and help them to understand who and what he really was. Of course, the disciples don't realize what all this means yet. They will later. And uh, so they're all there. Uh, again, he mentions Lazarus. That's had a big impact on them. Uh, and the Pharisees, don't you love their comment in verse 19? It's another time you've got sort of John's irony. They say, you see that you're not doing any good. That's probably more true than what they realized. The, the, look, the world's gone after him. It looks like he's just sweeping the whole world up. And the next section where the Gentiles come to seek him is maybe an indication that they were right about that. Comments and questions? Ben? How much of this group do you think the same group that a few days later asked? I don't really know. 
You know, it would be interesting to say they were fickle enough that they go from this to crucify him within a week. I don't know, though, how many of them were the same people. It's a large crowd. Of course, Jesus had a lot of followers from Galilee who would have been down here at the feast, so I don't know. Tim? Um, do you think Jesus was like, excited about this, or was he kind of supposed to conflict it because it was I mean, knowing that Jesus knows what's in man, I suspect he knew it was shallow. And I think, I think he's writing it on the colt to try to teach them, try to correct their shallow misimpression. That's what I would say. I don't know. He does, though, defend their praise. In Luke, he says, if they don't speak, the rocks will cry out. So he's not rejecting their praise, but I think he's trying to correct their misunderstanding. Mason? Um, so the, the disciples didn't understand these things, verse 16, uh, and then later they figured them out. Does that mean that they didn't understand what Jesus was doing, the way the crowd kind of said, oh, this means he's the Messiah because he's doing this? Or does it mean that they thought, as the crowd did, that Jesus was going to establish a physical kingdom when he got in Jerusalem. Wouldn't be surprised they thought that. Think about the request to sit on his right and left hand in glory. But I suspect they didn't understand the significance of how he rode in and connecting with Zachariah's prophecy and so forth as well. Brigham. I'm assuming it's kind of laying down the uh, red carpet. Red carpet, white carpet, I don't know. what it is. I guess. I mean, I, it's, it's kind of laying down a carpet for him to write in on. I don't know if there's something about palm branches that make them better to write in on or not. Bill? Um, question. As far as people are concerned, I figured that when they say Jews, the Jews are supposed to be the Pharisees. So what do we have here that says Pharisees? And then you have the crowd. So what do we make of when it says Jews? And like other things in the past chapters when it mentions Jews, who do we make out to be the Jews to be? Are they like a combination of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Or? Well, you've got Jews used in more than one sense in John. For example, in verse 11, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Probably not that many of the religious leaders. So that's probably not quite the same use of Jews, but more often than not in John, it means the leaders who were opposed to Jesus. So it depends. I mean, technically, everybody around here is Jews ethnically, racially, but John Moore uses the Jews as a technical term for the leaders opposed to Jesus, but not every time. Other thoughts? J.D. Um, there's some people have this term on through with Psalm 118, and there's maybe a uh, translation possibility with palm branches in that passage, I think. I don't know that, but that may be the case. Uh, so, I mean, that's what they're saying. When they say, blessed to you, come to the name of the Lord, that is Psalm 118 in the context of a triumphal entry into the city. Uh, messianic passage is the Lord's, you know, the scope of those projected to come to cornerstone. Right. I, I want to say there's something uh, about possibly the palm branches. There may be. Yeah, that's worth putting your notes and thinking about. John? Um, I always think confused about this, how it's a triumphal entry and, and what the Romans would have thought, because normally triumphal entries happen after triumph. And, like, you know, it hasn't happened any triumph over the Romans yet. So, what was the Romans? Well, triumphal entry is only our term to describe it. Right. I don't know what a better term would be. Uh, 
celebrated entry. Doesn't really mean he's conquered anything. So that's probably kind of a misnomer on our part. But that's what we always call it. So, Ben. <laughs> So excited about this, and they have a scripture. Isn't this reason blessed is he, Hosanna? You know, and, and they're going on about this in, in thinking back, we just realized that you know they had the wrong scripture at the time. <laughs> Good and, point. And we get really excited about good things, and we'll miss them. And then there's a place for joy and, and things like that. We just got to be careful that when our emotions are just sweeping us away, that uh, people are going to be like the side of the back. What's that do? Why people try to help us? Maybe they don't. Grab us and slap us. Maybe they try and do things, trying to talk to us, and then we look back later on and say, Why did I brush them off? And the silence here, they must have been kicking themselves for a long time. Good point. Good point. John? I guess more of my question was like, what kind of, wouldn't this be against the Roman law to do something like this? Or just, why? why? And all they're doing is just, uh, you know, cheering for him as he rides into the city. So they wouldn't know the word on the street that this is going to be the guy who's going to take over and redeem Israel? And yeah, maybe, but he doesn't. Does he look like he's going to really accomplish much? I, I don't know. doesn't seem to have attracted Roman attention. So. All right, how about 20 to 26? Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father, the Father will honor him. Now, have you been noticing this sub-theme in John of Jesus' mission to the Gentiles? The Samaritans in 442, he's indeed the savior of the world. In 735, they ask if he'll go teach the Greeks, but we realize that really was the truth. In 1016, he has the other sheep, not of this fold, that he's going to bring and make to be one. In 1152, not of this, the, for the nation only, but to gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And now the Greeks come to see Jesus. I think this is kind of the culmination of the idea that the mission of Jesus is going to be expanded beyond the Jews and reach out to the Gentiles. So, when these Greeks come, they want to see Jesus, who do they turn to? Philip. And what does Philip do? Goes to Andrew. Philip's pretty much always at a loss. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's the one who's going to say in chapter 14, oh yeah, show us the Father. That'd be enough for us when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he's the one who tells Jesus, well, this guy's got five sandwiches, but it's not enough. And he's the one that just told Nathaniel, come and see. Um, so he goes to Andrew. Well, what does Andrew do? 
Yeah, and actually I'm wrong. Philip's the one who said 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed them. Andrew's the one who brought the boy to Jesus with his lunch. Andrew's also the one that brought Peter to Jesus. And now Andrew's the one that together with Philip brings these Greeks to Jesus. Now, I don't know what to make of this, but it's kind of curious. There was only two, from what I understand, of the 12 apostles with Greek names, Philip and Andrew. So maybe that in itself would have been a reason why they would have felt more comfortable going to Philip and asking to see Jesus. Maybe not. I don't know how, how much a point to put in that. But they bring them to Jesus, or tell Jesus. And Jesus makes this the occasion to teach some things he wants to teach. First of all, in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now what does he mean by be glorified? That does not, on the first uh, sight, look like a way to be glorified, does it? But Jesus has a point here. Look at what he's saying. He says in verse 24, if you take a grain of wheat... Now, a grain of wheat is a wheat seed when it's all said and done. What does it take for that seed to bear fruit? You plant it. And in one way of looking at it, the seed dies to bring forth the plant that bears fruit. The law of Jesus' kingdom is that life comes through death. You die to have life and to bear fruit. That's true with Jesus. How did his life bear fruit? He died. How does our life bear fruit? We must die so that we may live and be fruitful. In verse 25, he says it more literally. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. We've got to quit living for ourselves and seek to live for the Lord. Give up our own life. And then he says in 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. That is really a shorthand in John for our duty as a Christian. Follow Jesus. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And that's our reward. Our duty, follow him. Our reward will be with him where he is. All of that means we must die to ourselves and live to him. So really uh, important little section Jesus teaches on this occasion of the Greeks coming to him. Great. Yeah, I was, uh, I was thinking maybe when he says, where I am, there my servant will be also, is that almost in contrast to him telling them before that where I am, you cannot come? Good point, yes, I think so. Um, verse, uh, verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Is he saying, like, you love this world, you will not go to heaven, but if you hate this life world, you will go to heaven? Yes. Roger. Yeah, I think when, when we learn uh, to, to really live the Christian life, we you know, sacrifice ourselves and serve people. That's what we'll be more productive for the Lord in bringing people to God. Unless Jesus would have died on the cross, he wouldn't have brought people to, to, Jesus, uh, to, to God. And unless we like pick up our cross and, and love people and sacrifice ourselves and serve and suffer and take things, we're not going to bring anybody to God. Good point. Daniel. Okay. Uh, it doesn't actually ever say that the Greeks came to him. It just says that they asked Philip and Andrew, then Andrew, or the Philip told Andrew that the Greeks were asking for him, that they went from Jesus. So, they, I mean, it seems like almost kind of like 
we don't know whether or not the Greeks actually came to heard these words from Jesus, or if he just said these things, maybe to Philip and Andrew or to the people around them. I agree with that. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Brigham. Is the coming of the Greeks some kind of signal to Jesus that the time has come? Maybe in some ways. Yeah. The mission is taking the next step, which necessitates his glorification. Ben? I was wondering about Philip not really being, you know, whatever, super confident or whatever. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people say that kind of stuff, and I can't really do anything or whatever. I mean, it's just maybe grateful that God takes those of us who really don't have any skills or aren't really special in the world's eyes, and he can take us and use us for his purpose. Amen. The power is the Lord. I mean, you look at the disciples as a whole. They aren't the kind of guys I would have thought you could have trusted a worldwide mission to. <laughs> but what if he didn't entrusted a worldwide mission to the 12 most talented men in the world? Then we'd have glorified them and not the Lord. You know, that's, G- that's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He put the treasure in clay pots. So we glorify the, the giver and not the, the pots. You know, you take the gospel in the lives of these limited men and you see the power of God. Tim? I think the most talented guy he used maybe on was Paul, but Paul had to switch his whole thing nobody liked him. He was a talented guy. Yeah, I mean, Paul's past certainly uh, compromises his claim to, you know, being a likely candidate for this. Eric. You know, it reminds me of in like Acts 4 when Peter and John are speaking boldly and they're like, well, these are just fishermen. But the reason is they realize they have been with Jesus. Precisely. Lane. I'm not paying on this passage, but this is a Passover piece, right? It is. How come the Greeks went to There were a lot of Gentiles who were God-fearing people who would actually go. Now, they couldn't go as far into the temple complex as the Jews could. There was a court of the Gentiles surrounding the temple complex to get that far. But there were a lot of God-fearing Gentiles who were almost converts to Judaism, except they hadn't been circumcised. But they do, they're God-fearers. That's what they were called. Jamie. Um, uh, it seemed kind of weird, we were talking last night, it seemed kind of weird that this is the city of my hour's not come, my hour's not come. Greeks inquire from, oh, now my hour's come. What do you think? Is, is this like the signal of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that through you all the nations of will be blessed, through you have reconciled? Uh, at this point, it's kind of the symbolic reconciliation of Jew and Gentile that Paul talks about, you know, the dividing wall being taken down, the fulfillment of promises in the Old Testament about the life of the Gentiles and all that. It's just kind of a big, symbolically, not a lot happens literally, but symbolically will be Yes. I don't know, though, if we should say that this is how he knew it was the hour. I don't know. Maybe God had told him in other ways. But it is an important event. Yes. I think the problem with the is Jesus has already known that he's going to Jerusalem, right. so he knows the hour's coming. And the disciples are like, what's going on? Why, is it, why are these people coming to you? And he's explaining to them that, you know, this is when the times are starting to change. This is when the big hour is coming. So get ready. Got Good. Tim. Well, what's different with these Greeks coming in and Roman centurion and other Gentiles that came in previously? 
Well, maybe those were isolated individuals. This is more a group. Um, that's all I would know to say. I, I don't want to overplay this either, but it is one more step in the direction that John has been going that the gospel is going to broaden out and bring other sheep in. I think, I think this is kind of the next step in that process. Okay, uh, how about uh, 27 to 36? <clears throat> How's my soul spoken? What shall I say? Father, save from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all my people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is, in, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light. So you may also become sons of light. Alright, here's kind of the unprayer. Jesus' soul is troubled, and he proposes the idea of asking the Lord to save him from this hour. But that's not what he asks. Why not? That's the purpose for which he came. That's the will of God. This is sort of the Gethsemane concept in John. You know, this idea of the struggle that he had, the desire that he would have not to go through with this, and yet his greater determination to fulfill the will of God. He wants the glory of the Father no matter what the cost, even though in many ways he would like to be spared this, this cup. So he prays ultimately that God would glorify his own name. And the voice comes out of heaven and says, I both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people think it's thundered and some people think an angel answered. Evidently they didn't understand the words, but they heard something. And Jesus says, well really, that was for you. That was a sign to show who Jesus was. And then he says, judgment is upon the world. Now is the victory. Now is the decisive defeat of the devil. Now if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And you see that all men again, the calling of the Gentiles. Now as lifted up is his crucifixion, which is also his exaltation. So what appears to be his defeat is ultimately his victory over the forces of Satan. I'm assuming that Satan never recognized what was going to happen. You know, this outsmarted Satan... Uh, if Satan had known that, surely he would not have entered Judas to betray Jesus. But, but this, that appeared to be Satan's victory. Boomeranged, it was Jesus' victory. Alright, comments and questions through verse 33. Yes, um, Well, good question. Um, I suppose it's he's trying to still get this to work out just the way the Lord wanted it. If he hadn't done that, they might have arrested him prematurely. Okay. 
the idea that people from all nations were going to come to him uh, he's going to, by, by him being lifted up, by him being crucified not, not that every single individual, but people from everywhere no, not exactly <laughs> yes My answer is no. Satan is not omniscient. Now, Satan's pretty smart. Pretty dumb, but pretty smart. But no, as far as I know, he doesn't, he doesn't have some way to know what we're thinking. Ben? The judgment that is upon this world, is that judgment, what, what, what is that judgment, and also who is pronouncing this judgment? Well, I think this is just the fall of Satan the fall of sin, you know, and, and this, is, this is the decisive act that brings down Satan, the world, the forces of the enemy. Bill? Um, throughout most of the book, we have when Jesus does signs, he does signs for the people to leave. You just mentioned that, that you know, with the thunder or that they heard, that the sign was for the people. I mean, I don't think we have people believing here. Why have a sign which people won't believe? Like, in the book of John, when you have all these other signs, that makes people believe, like, false faith. Well, maybe it was a help to them, even in that. I don't know that it didn't help them believe. Roger? How is that a judgment, though? Like, that, that Satan, so I guess through Jesus' sacrifice, that's God judging Satan or something like that? Yeah, destroying him, defeating him, bringing him down. That's true as well. Okay, good point, JP. Um, in verse twenty-eight, when it's stated, um, "I have both glorified it and it will be glorified again," um, the path. Well, what, is, what does he mean by "I have both glorified it"? Is that just like from the creation of the world, he has glorified it, or from the start of? Christ's ministry. I would think more from the start of Christ's ministry, but I don't know for sure. And then the glorifying again is the cross. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension. Yes, Christy. I imagine that uh, verse 31, now, now judgment is upon this world, not the rule of this world will be cast out. I'm certain that that gave, that gave a lot of people that were listening these political views, and I just thought that was interesting that they probably thought, oh, the ruler of this world, that means the Romans are going to be cast out. Instead of who it actually was. Hadn't thought about that, but I think you're right. That's a good point. Yes, Caleb. Do you think it was the anticipation of the physical pain that is troubling to him, or is it something more? I think it's something more. You know, in Gethsemane, he prays that the cup would pass from him. Now, what was the cup? Well, I think by Old Testament analogy and even New Testament passages that talk about the cup, it's the suffering of God's wrath. 
I think Jesus' physical pain was more or less a, a symbol of the deeper pain of experiencing God's wrath for sin. And I think that was the real pain Jesus experienced. Logan. Um, in verse 31, if the judgment is upon saying Satan, the, let's look at it as the ruler of this world, and it, that's what it is, is he the ruler of this world in the sense that God allows him to have some control over what goes on or is it more uh, the sin? I think he's the ruler of this world in the sense that people give their allegiance to him and obey him. Right. We've got that song, Glorify Thy Name, and I think we forget what Jesus meant when he said he intended to suffer for God. Yes. Yeah, Jesus is glorified in a way you wouldn't expect. Good point. Brigham. Um, I don't know, maybe just because I can't understand it, but I have trouble reconciling God pouring out his wrath on Jesus and then John 10, for this reason the Father loves me because I, I lay down my life. So this is, this is God, God uh, was abounding in affection towards Jesus. He was dying and yet turning away from him in wrath on Jesus suffered the torture and punishment for our sins. That was God's will. That's what God wanted Jesus to do. He loved him because he was willing to go through those things. I don't think that's a contradiction. I don't think that God, when we think about God's wrath, sometimes we think about God getting mad. When that God got mad, it's that sin must be punished and it must be punished in a horrible way. So Jesus took that punishment upon himself. He experienced the wrath of God that should come upon us for our sins. Didn't mean God was mad at him. That's what God wanted him to do. Now, there's more depth to that than I could possibly imagine. You know, I don't understand all of that. But I do think that's what the scriptures teach. Yes, Shelley. Uh, when he says, uh, what shall I say to save him from this hour, is that like his human emotion showing or is that more like... I think it's like he doesn't want to go through with it and yet he wants to fulfill his father's will. So he kind of, he kind of thinks about praying this and he draws back. Alright, here's what I'm going to do. I'm probably overdue on giving you a break. Let me do that. We'll come back and finish up this section. We'll try to start back in about uh, 12.30.